You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. I want to talk today about something called hermeneutics, which is something that uh, I don't think I've ever actually dedicated an entire talk to here on a Sunday morning. How many of you have heard this term before, hermeneutics? I'm just curious. Okay, good, most of you. Um, hermeneutics basically means interpretation, and we usually invoke the word when we want to sound smart, right? When we're in a, a conversation with somebody about biblical interpretation, right? But it's far more complex and interesting than just uh, having to do with how we read the Bible. It's really a field of study that applies to any communication, be it spoken or written, be it art or anything, even the way we interpret and understand physical reality, I would argue, and so would a lot of philosophers, um, that that too is hermeneutics. And we'll get into that in a few minutes because I think it's really interesting. It holds implications for how we uh, think about spirituality. But we need to start small here this morning and, and build up from there. I want to start with the micro and then expand out to the macro. So I want to begin by looking at the context of hermeneutics just within, you know, biblical hermeneutics, which is usually the way that we talk about hermeneutics. Hermeneutics, the, the, maybe the simplest definition is that it is the art of deciphering hidden meaning. Hermeneutics is the art of deciphering hidden meaning, because meaning is always hidden or encrypted in the objects and the structures of our world. It's interesting that the word hermeneutics actually comes from the name of the Greek god Hermes. Did you know that? Hermes was, among other things, a notorious trickster. He was also the inventor of language, we're told, according to you know, Greek mythology. And the inventor of language and speech, and he relished in communicating in cryptic riddles and parables and symbols and metaphors. He was also considered the messenger of the gods. All this made him the perfect namesake for this field of study. And to me, this means that ancient people, including those who wrote our sacred scriptures, as they did so in Greek, ancient Greek, Koine Greek, a dead language from the first century. All this means to me that these writers of Scripture who were deeply influenced by Greek thought, they too understood the power of Hermes, the power of symbolism and metaphor. They understood hermeneutics, we would say. These were not hapless, primitive rubes who thought all of their folktales, myths, and legends were literal history, in other words. Understanding hermeneutics begins by understanding that we all come to the text with a lens, whether we know it or not. Often we are not completely aware of our lenses, but we all come to, come to the text, to the Bible, with a lens, and that lens comes from our culture, our family of origin, our socioeconomic status, our ethnicity, our level of education, our political leanings, our 
desires, our anxieties, our presuppositions about God, our presuppositions about what the Bible is, etc., etc. The lens kind of doesn't end, I guess you would say. What, is, what, what this means is that we all come to the Bible with these biases, with these presuppositions, and often they're unconscious. Therefore, people with different backgrounds read the Bible differently and always have and always will. A wealthy, white, Republican, evangelical male is going to read the Bible very differently than, say, a poor person of color living 80 years ago in Alabama under Jim Crow. Likewise, a queer person today is going to read the Bible very differently than a straight person, and so on and so forth. Understanding the different lenses, biases, and presuppositions that we bring to the text, and understanding that we all bring such things to the text, often unconsciously, understanding all this, and understanding how those things control meaning, is what hermeneutics is all about, or at least what biblical hermeneutics is all about. When I first learned about hermeneutics, I was a delicate undergrad, <laughs> uh, going to school in Nashville, Tennessee 20 years ago, you know, still very conservative, still voting Republican, still very evangelical, all of that. And I remember sitting, at, I was a Bible major at Lipscomb University. And I remember sitting in the, uh, in the classroom hearing about hermeneutics and how I bring these lenses to the text that I inherited from my family, from my church, and just having my mind blown by that and realizing that biblical interpretation was not an objective thing, that interpretation was a subjective endeavor. It was not really an objective endeavor. It wasn't scientific because I was raised, like many of you, being taught you know, the Bible says what the Bible says. You don't interpret it, right? I was taught interpretation is bunk. You don't interpret the Bible. A child could read, the, we were told this, a, a child could read the scriptures and understand it because it's clear. The Bible is clear. You just, have you heard this one before? The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it, right? Nothing settled, I learned in undergrad, that we all come to the text with these lenses, and they are entirely subjective. And it blew my mind. And keep in mind, Lipscomb was a conservative Christian university still, but the Bible department, like most Bible departments uh, in most colleges and universities, Christian colleges, are full of closet progressives. All right? And so was mine, as I found out, because they were saying... Hermeneutics is a real field of study, and you bring all these lenses to the text, and therefore there is no perfectly objective reading of the text. There are only subjective readings that are varying degrees of accurate, <laughs> right? But this opened a whole new world to me. This is, you could say this was really the beginning of my deconstruction 20-some-odd years ago. This, this revelation that the Bible was not simple and clear and that we all come to the text from different places, and our readings are different, therefore. And so there wasn't this one authoritative understanding of what the Bible says. There was countless understandings. And that was a scary idea to me at first, and rightfully so as a conservative evangelical, because if the Bible needed to be interpreted and wrestled with, then its meaning would at least somehow be 
you know, subjective, and therefore no one could claim ultimate authority. That was the big deal. No one could claim ultimate authority or certainty about it. This in turn could lead to the authority and the supremacy of the church itself being called into question, which in turn would mean that people would get harder to control and assert authority over. Churches could lose members and money and power because ultimately the scriptures were kind of open. In a sense, so much of conservative religion, not just Christianity, but we're talking about Christianity, so much of conservative Christianity is predicated on the denial of hermeneutics as an important field of study. I never heard about hermeneutics until I was in college. I never heard about it at church, certainly. So that's basically what we mean when we talk about biblical hermeneutics. And I want to expand out there from from there this morning and talk about how hermeneutics is really present in other spheres of life. Consider that all communication is subject to hermeneutics. Even the act of understanding the sounds coming out of my mouth and throat right now. These sounds we call words are just variations of air pressure. <laughs> you know, frequencies, they're just sound waves that somehow represent ideas in my skull that come out of my mouth and that enter your ears and get into your head, but you have to translate that. You have to interpret those words, yes? Those sounds into ideas. And that's always a tricky proposition. You may or may not be interpreting my words correctly if you don't understand my language very well or the, or the context of my words. Maybe I'm joking or being ironic. Maybe I'm speaking literally or figuratively. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm telling a story or raising a question or making a suggestion. Understanding all that and more is the art of hermeneutics. You're, you're doing hermeneutics all the time. You just don't know it. Hermeneutics is, is not just a textual issue having to do with how we interpret books like the Bible but it's really how we interpret everything. When you listen to music, when you read poetry, for those of you who read poetry, I don't know who does, but maybe you do, or when you look at a piece of art, like a painting or a sculpture, how you interpret that, the meaning you think is there, what you think the artist is communicating, this too is hermeneutics. Again, hermeneutics is the art of deciphering hidden meaning. Even if you arrive at, a, at an understanding that is other than which the artist intended, which happens a lot in art, you know, and artists like that, but that too is hermeneutics. It's still about uncovering hidden meaning, or better yet, creating meaning. Hermeneutics isn't just about deciphering hidden meaning, it is about creating meaning, activating meaning. This is what people mean when they say things like, I don't read poetry, poetry reads me. <laughs> Have you ever heard that? It sounds a little pompous. I don't read poetry, poetry reads me. I don't read the Bible, the Bible reads me. That always sounds deep. That too is hermeneutics, and it's true because everything is hermeneutics, including spiritual and mystical experiences. For example, a Hindu woman 
imagine a Hindu woman living in Mumbai who has a vision, a mystical experience. She doesn't see Jesus. No. She sees Kali or Vishnu or any number of other you know, countless Hindu deities, right? Or consider a Christian man living today in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who has a mystical experience or a vision. He doesn't see Kali or Vishnu. He sees Jesus, or he sees, I don't know, if he's Catholic, maybe he sees St. Peter or Mary, right? Now, critics hear that, and they say, this is proof that spiritual experiences and visions, they are, they are delusions and fabrications of the imagination that do not point to anything real or external to us. But hermeneutic says, not so fast. Perhaps these experiences, like every experience we have in life, is filtered through our, our unique social and cultural lens. Thus, Jesus, Vishnu, Kali, Mary, St. Peter are hermeneutically speaking cultural approximations for a deeper and universal reality we might call God the transcendent, the ineffable, the divine, etc. I love how Jeff Kripal puts it, a religion and philosophy professor at Rice University. He says, what is the imagination? Is it simply a spinner of fantasies? Or can it become a window of revealed truth from, from some deeper part of the soul or world? End quote. This is hermeneutics. The human imagination is perhaps not just a spinner of fantasies, but perhaps a window of revealed truth from some deeper part of ourselves or the world. And yeah, those deeper truths, these, these deeper realities appear to us in different ways, depending upon our unique social location. That, that's the hermeneutics of mystical and spiritual experiences. And here we see how hermeneutics, again, is not just about interpreting texts, but about interpreting all of life. It's about interpreting experience itself. And seeing the whole world as a kind of text to be interpreted. And it gets even deeper than that. Hermeneutics can really be applied to all of physical reality. There's a compelling theory today that says the physical world around us is like icons on your computer or your phone screen, right? You click on an icon and a program or an app launches or some text or some pictures pop up on your screen, right? But none of this tells us actually what's going on inside, inside the machine, the computer or the phone. The fact is the applications, the information, and the pictures on our device are really a complex system of electronic hardware that's unseen, magnetic fields, and voltages. That's really the underlying reality of it. We don't see that or understand that unless we're engineers, right? What you see on the screen and interact with is just an interface. It's just an interface for this hidden and unseen reality. The interface is not the thing itself, but a mere symbol, we would say, or a representation of this underlying and unseen reality. This is how many cognitive scientists today think about, think, 
how our mind works. It's an interface. Consciousness, awareness, our perception of the world around us is a mere interface that allows us to navigate through the physical world, but doesn't actually reveal the physical world to us as it really is. For example, the pew you're sitting on right now, it is actually 99% empty space because the atoms that comprise it are approximately 99% empty space. Now, of course, we don't experience the pew that way. The, the, the pew's solid to us, right? But in reality, our bodies, that pew, are over 99% empty space, and yet we don't slip through it. We don't perceive the world that way. That's how our minds, that's how our consciousness, that's how our bodies perceive reality. Consider the flow of time. We perceive time as very, very real and very linear, as past, present, and future. Most physicists today will tell you, well, actually, that's not really what time is. We're not even sure what time is. We're not even sure it's real or that it's linear. That's, that's a mere perception of time that our minds have created for us so that we can navigate reality and find food and procreate and survive. It's all an interface, but it's not actually what reality really is. This too is hermeneutics. Consciousness, our mind, is constantly encountering physical reality and interpreting it for us, but the underlying nature of reality is hidden from us. It's fascinating. This too is hermeneutics. What does all this mean? Well, I brought all this up <laughs> because I think it's helpful in the way that we think about spirituality today as modern people. The fact is our consciousness plays a huge role in not just deciphering reality but constructing reality. There are theories of physics that suggest perceptions may affect reality and that our consciousness confers structure on an indeterminate universe. It's as if everything is sort of an open field before we perceive it and that perception itself resolves things into the physical world. We see and understand. That too is hermeneutics. It's not just about interpreting and activating texts, but it's about interpreting and activating reality itself. And I think once one wraps their head around that a little bit, the boundary between what is imaginal and real becomes blurred. The boundary between the mental and the material becomes blurred. And we might even say the boundary between the physical and the spiritual becomes blurred. Consciousness and perception don't just observe reality, we're taught today, but even create reality. That is hermeneutics, the depth of hermeneutics. And I think once one understands that to some level, the boundaries between spirituality and the rest of life really become kind of blurred. In a sense, hermeneutics and spirituality are very much the same thing, I'm saying. They're both about deciphering hidden meaning Perhaps being a spiritual person doesn't mean believing certain things about God or being a part of this religion or that religion, but perhaps being a spiritual person is about realizing that all of life and the world is a rich landscape full of hidden meaning, waiting for minds like ours 
to come along to discover it or to create it. I think that's really interesting and exciting, and this means that our religions, our, our spiritual traditions, and our sacred texts can be seen as, as powerful instruments in that regard. We should see them as, as windows, perhaps, into some deeper part of ourselves and the world. All right, so that's my talk today about hermeneutics, <laughs> and I know I struggled with whether or not we should like go all the way into like the whole science physical reality part of it but you know me i like to go there <laughs> uh but yeah we got a few minutes um anybody have any questions about any of that any comments uh what did that raise for you uh you know anybody want to share their experience with hermeneutics and wrestling with the bible and how that might have changed their spiritual journey but yeah anything Yeah, Marsha. Oh, yeah, sure, go ahead. <laughs> That's a good question. Marsha asked, for those of you listening online, um, when I was in that class in college um, where we talked about hermeneutics and there was more than one class like that, uh, what other interpretations of the Bible came up? Not too many, because it was basically a school for Church of Christ kids from the South. Right? Church of Christ was a, is a denomination in the South. I was kind of unique because I grew up in Chicago, Pentecostal. Um, but I realized in that class that none of these kids are Pentecostal, and they do not believe in you know, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and divine healing. That alone, even though they were still conservatives and evangelicals, that alone made me feel like, oh, wow, they really read the Bible differently than I do because they don't believe in, you know, miracles today or something like that. So I guess there was my interpretation and then everybody else's in that Church of Christ classroom. Not, not too many. It was a predominantly evangelical, very white, very male classroom. Um, so not too many in that. But nevertheless, I was aware that there, you know, because we did church history as well, and studied other parts of other denominations. I was aware that there's all these other interpretations. So yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I felt confident, relatively safe and confident to describe some of my views. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there was a little pushback. They were like, who's this weird kid from Chicago? A little, little bit of that, but yeah. When I, when I was interviewing to get into that school, I was asked, why do you want to go here? You're not Church of Christ. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Good question. Other questions? Yeah, Leanne, let me get you the mic. Yeah, so I went to theater school for undergrad, mm -hmm. um, where you learn to make lots of money. Um, <laughs> and... One of my favorite classes, I think one of the most important classes I took the Here, whole time take I was this there. One. I don't know why you even hand that one out anymore. That's take okay. this one. Um, was about applying different lenses to text, so dramatic text, but also we learned about the example was The Great Gatsby. And in this book, we would read about how if you apply like a psychoanalytic lens on it, on terms of like, 
why, like looking from psychoanalysis of why the great Gatsby does what he does and all that, and then applying like a Marxist lens to the text and how does socioeconomics play into the story, and then applying a feminist lens to the text, like how is Daisy, you know, limited by this view of Southern femininity, and then like basically this book would just sort of go into each, and then from there it was like a critical, kind of like a critical analysis class on um, plays. So we would take something like A Streetcar Named Desire and like how, what does a feminist lens do to this? What does a Marxist lens do to this? And I would say that walking away from theater school, um, that was probably one of the most helpful and important classes I took in terms of not only as an artist, but as like a person in the world of like, what does it look like if I put on that like Marxist lens and like think about like the social, like, economic ideology that's at play, whether that be a piece of art or also like a political candidate or a person sharing their opinion. So I think it's interesting you brought this up because I never thought that like this is a hermeneutical approach and it really was um, really valuable. So I think that it's, it's a great tool. Thanks for sharing that. And one of the things that's also helpful to think about, you just reminded me of this, so much of so-called biblical Christianity that you know, people call biblical Christianity is Pauline, meaning it's, it's Paul's hermeneutic, right? Jesus understood through the lens of Paul's hermeneutic, which was really Greek, but also really steeped in specifically first century Pharisee Jewish theology. So when we read in Paul about atonement theory that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, um, these, these kinds of, this is very Paul. And we could even go further into Paul's view of women. <laughs> That's problematic, right? And, and so hermeneutics doesn't stop. It's hermeneutics all the way to the bottom. So, so much of Christianity, the so-called, you know, orthodox Christianity that we get today, and orthodox Christianity really didn't become orthodox Christianity into the fourth century which was Christianity read through the hermeneutic and the lens of fourth century bishops from essentially Europe and the Mediterranean world, right? Reading it through their Trinitarian understandings. It doesn't stop, right? There is no pure, undefiled, so to speak, undefiled access to the, you know, the essence of what, you know, even, even the Gospels <laughs> written by people, by men, from a particular vantage point and their understanding or whatever remembrance of what Jesus said and did. But again, all of it's hermeneutics. And so, yeah, that gets a little crazy. Um, but yeah, uh, Steve, were you going to say something? Yeah. Well, first, just to say, and it's our interpretation of Paul's interpretation of Jesus's interpretation of the Jewish text, right? Like it's, yeah, it's all, like you said, all the way down. Um, one thing that I find is, uh, often when I'm talking to people, is um, what I might call like a hermeneutic block. A lot of people that don't want to think about the, how they approach something. So looking at a piece of art and wanting it to just be able to say, it's a painting of a man and a woman. It's a painting of a pipe. It's a painting, like looking at a movie and just being like, well, yeah, James Bond saved the girl in the end, you know, or whatever. <laughs> Um, and a, a lot of difficulty in starting the conversation about 
well, how do we think about this a little bit further? Well, well, Jesus said this, and therefore it must be that. Um, or Paul said this, and therefore it must be that. And starting that process of engaging somebody in interpretation. Um, I find that a lot, especially with art, where um, I really enjoy modern art, which takes a little bit more uh, time to think about what your interpretation of it is, as opposed to sort of looking at uh, like a Rembrandt painting or something, which is like, well, the angel's bringing the light to the person, and that's exactly what it is. Um, and so I just wonder your experience with that as talking to people over the years, as starting people on that sort of, or, or engaging with them in the process of starting to think about how they approach things, or starting to open their eyes to the, just the idea that you can approach things with a different lens. Yeah, I mean, it can be very jarring for some folks when they first go down that road. And it is jarring, especially when you're talking about some deeply you know, intimate, closely held beliefs that define their identity, gave them a sense of comfort and security, right? Their beliefs about God. And, um, but ultimately, I think it's good news. <laughs> I think even, I know this sounds like bad news today, hermeneutics, right? And everything is, is steeped in these subjective experiences, right? Um, no, I think ultimately this is, this, on the other side of, yeah, and this sounds like bad news, but actually it's good news. It's freeing, it's liberating, it's, it's, it's exciting, it invites us forward, and, and, and it invites us to consider the others around us and their points of view, and to hear a, a chorus of humanity kind of joining in, you know, and, and to hold on to our own views, but hold on to them lightly and say, hey, this is what I think, but I might be wrong. That's beautiful. And, and to be liberated to really, I think, invest in the best kinds of questions. Like, what does it mean for us to be Christ today? Today, here and now, what does it mean to be agents of love and justice today? And Because that looks differently now than it did a hundred years ago or, or, or a thousand years ago, you know, in that part of the world. It looks different, and that's cool. And that's, I think, what it means to you know, practice hermeneutics as well. It's, it's liberating, it's exciting, it's inviting, it's, um, and I think that's also incarnational theology. What does it mean to incarnate Christ today? To, it all kind of overlaps. So that's where I try to lead people, Steve. Yeah, you kind of, you kind of have to get over the initial depression of it, you know, and that's good. That depression is okay. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, you know, there has to be a crucifixion before a resurrection, right? Uh, not all gods need to die, just the murderous and oppressive ones, but yeah, there's a lot of gods that need to die, you know? Um, so that's where, I, that's where I go with it. Um, any, anybody else have something they want to say today? Okay, Leland, yeah. So, um, I recently wrote for a PhD exam on um, intertextuality or... Uh, and kind of this like idea of uh, different hermeneutics and we're all kind of planted in our own context and we all you know if i say the word dog we all think of a different dog right you know it might depend on you know, might think of a german shepherd i might think of a cocker spaniel right and um it gets into when we read the bible we read anything we all come with our own interpretive meanings and and some of these you know there's really no wrong answer uh and then i get on TikTok or Facebook and I see people coming to the Bible and coming with I mean dangerous and deadly interpretations you know um, 
that lead to hate and uh, and then you know the biblical scholar man goes no but that's so wrong and so kind of trying to hold these two things where yes everyone is entitled to their voice in coming to this text and coming away with their own hermeneutic and interpretation but also trying to say you can't use this for evil <laughs> and I I think there's like a there's like a logical block in my head it's like everyone can come to this and be right but not everyone can be right about this you know and it's, it's um, yeah it's just kind of like it's I don't know how to hold those two thoughts no I appreciate what you're saying and to be clear when I'm talking about hermeneutics I'm certainly not saying that all interpretations are equally valid or accurate to the original historical context What's written? Certainly not. Uh, I'm not trying to, you know, take it there and be like, hey, you know, yeah, all interpretations are equally valid. Well, no, and not all inter interpretations are equally ethical or moral either. For no, absolutely not. But there are countless interpretations. I guess that's kind of my point. And often, often is the case, is, you know, in in uh, you know among friends, you know. <laughs> That even in a room like this, we're going to read the Bible in some, you know, depending on the passage, in some different ways. And, there, and, the, and the lot, most of the time, those differences, I think, are fine. But you're right, Leland. It's not always fine. And that's a good point to make. Well, I want us to uh, conclude here today a little early so that we can go into our, um, our annual congregational meeting uh, without taxing everybody's time too much. Um, but I did want to say that um, to kind of dovetail today into next week. So next week begins February, it's Black History Month, and so we're gonna do a, a four-part series here on, I'm not sure what the title is yet, but essentially featuring um, black liberation theology, talking about what specifically um, is the witness, the message, or the voice of some of the most important um, black theologians uh, in US history in particular. I'm thinking James Cone, James Baldwin, Dr. King, maybe Cornel West, maybe Christina Cleveland, who wrote God as a Black Woman that we've talked about here and did a book club on. So those are the kind of voices over the next four weeks I'm going to be talking about here during Black History Month. And that has to do with hermeneutics, just like everything else. So we're going to be looking at uh, our sacred texts through the lens of um, uh, some of these uh, black thinkers uh, who are deeply influential on the American church and on this church and many of us who care about social justice and a social justice reading of the text. So we're going to dive into that and take it in various directions. But it's going to be a, a series where each week I think we're going to feature a different thinker, a, a different individual who's been deeply influential, those, those individuals I just mentioned.